Welcome to OncoFarm. I'm your host, John Bazaar. I'm a professor of pharmacy practice here at the supporting sponsor of OncoFarm, ETSU's Bill Gatton College of Pharmacy. It is our first episode of 2024, and we are doing a Foundations of OncoFarm episode on lenalidomide. If you are a, a new listener of the podcast, there are... Um, really a bunch of these types of episodes going back five or six years, however long the podcast has been going, from cisplatin to, um, you know, uh, cyclophosphamide docs, rubicin. So if you're new to oncology, those are all, uh, actually, you can find those in a playlist, which is um, pinned on uh, my Twitter profile. Um, and really the purpose of these episodes is to really go over the bread and butter basics that every clinician really, I think, needs to know, especially oncology pharmacists about these drugs. So today we're talking lenalidomide, brand name Revlimid, originally known as Imid-3. And the mechanism of action, as I was taught, was an immunomodulator. And that, uh, that term uh, we abbreviate as Imid, which is why it was first named Imid-3. Uh, that doesn't tell you, is it immunosuppressant? Is it immune uh, increasing agent? You know, is it immunotherapy? Uh, and it's really uh, neither of those. Really, maybe the best way to think of how this drugs work is it is a protein degradator. Degrader? Um, so uh, lilamide binds to uh, a protein, uh, cerebellon, and that then forms a complex uh, with certain transcription factors and ubiquitin and undergoes proteasomal degradation. The proteasome is like the garbage disposal of the cell. So really what lenalidomide does is leads to the destruction of transcription factors that are important for you know the, the cancer cell development, primarily hematologic cancer cells. Uh, and those tr transcription factors include uh, Icarus family zinc protein sorry, Icarus family zinc finger protein 1, or Icarus uh, KF1, um, and then Icarus family zinc finger protein 3, which is called Ilos. These all come from Greek mythology. Uh, VEGF6 is also degraded, um, but uh, in the process, or seemingly from that, that degradation of transcription factors, a whole host of effects happen that, that affect immune function, including uh, mimicking the signaling of interferon on non-Hodgkin's lymphoma cells, increasing T lymphocyte co-stimulation, including increasing IL-2 secretion uh, and activation, uh, inhibiting tumor necrosis factor secretion for monocytes. This was actually the basis for the original development of, of, uh, of thalidomide and, and lilidomide, uh, which was, you know, would have been a huge market. We know how, um, how much, uh, how prevalent the TNF inhibiting biologics are and things like rheumatoid arthritis. Um, and, and that was kind of the original development of this uh, but what we now know is by degrading these transcription factors like Icarus family 1 and VEGF and things like that, we have really potent anti-multiple myeloma effect. Um, now, and we'll talk about that uh, just in a second, but despite these effects on transcription factors, there's really no evidence that, that lenalidomide has any effect on immune function uh, related to, um, to, to solid tumors. You know, in other cancers like melanoma, and renal cell carcinoma and non-small cell lung cancer, other cancers where we know immunotherapy, immune checkpoint numbers are very active, we don't see that activity with lenalidomide and thalidomide analogs. So there are clear effects on immune function, but it's related to this de degradation of transcription factors for the development of, of these, stem, these cancer stem cells that are really um, limited to, to hematologic 
uh, cancers. And we didn't really know the full mechanism of this until there was a, a really good blood article in 2015 that really uh, clarified how linalidomide actually works. I mentioned its primary use is multiple myeloma, both in treatment and in maintenance. Um, its actual original FDA approval was for MDS in 2005 and still has a role in, in 5Q deletion MDS. Also has approvals for mantle cell lymphoma, uh, follicular lymphoma in uh, conjunction with rituximab. They call it the RR regimen, Revlimid rituximab or R squared, and, um, and marginal zone uh, lymphoma. Um, won't talk, a, or mantle zone lymphoma, won't talk a lot about those other activities. We're going to focus, or those other um, uses, focusing mostly on myeloma. That's where this drug is used. So the dosing of this for multiple myeloma is 25 milligrams by mouth daily, days 21 of a 28-day cycle. So three weeks on, one week off. That extra week is to allow for um, the bone marrow to recover a little bit as as immunosupp or as um, hematologic toxicity is the dose limiting toxicity. Uh, the dose for maintenance is 10 milligrams daily, and it's available as 2.5, 5, 10, 15, 20, 25 milligram capsules. So increments of five or two and a half. Uh, there are dose reductions for real dysfunction, which we'll talk about a little bit at the end when we go over the uh, ADME profile, uh, absorption, distribution, metabolism, and elimination. Um, there are some really notable warnings and precautions for lenalidomide. The first that everyone, of course, knows is the embryophetal toxicity. You know, when I talk about new drugs that are proved in oncology, you know, embryophetal toxicity and the potential uh, tragicity of using these agents in, in women who are pregnant is almost assumed. And it's in, it's in a, the warnings precautions of almost every oncologic drug. And I hardly mention it when new drugs come out because it is implied. It is very important for linalidomide because it is a, a, a cousin of thalidomide. And we all know the story of thalidomide and um, the, quote, flipper babies uh, that resulted from pregnant women in Europe taking thalidomide for morning sickness. Notably, it wasn't approved here in, in the U.S., um, very important story uh, in the, the history of the FDA, which I'm not going to talk about today. You know how much I love history. I'm going to hold off on that. You'll hear more about that next week. Uh, and because of this risk of embryophilic toxicity, there is a REMS program, a risk evaluation and mitigation strategy program. It's very restrictive that requires registration by the dispensing pharmacist or dispensing pharmacy by the prescriber and the patient. And again, you'll hear more about that next week, special guest. Um, so... So that's, that's the big concern here, is the embryophetal toxicity. Practically, that is um, not that huge of a concern because this drug is mostly used in multiple myeloma where the median age of, of diagnosis is 70. So we still have to have, uh, adhere to the strict REMS program um, for this drug for that reason. Uh, I mentioned, you know, hematologic toxicity, especially neutropenia, thrombocytopenia. That's the DLT. That's why the 21 days on. Then you give a week for the bone marrow to recover a little bit so you can maintain your dose density. And we also have a box warning for uh, thrombotic events, possibly due to that decrease in VEGF factor. We've seen thrombotic events with other drugs that inhibit VEGF. This drug also leads to decreased uh, vascular endothelial growth factor levels. So we do need prophylaxis at least low-dose aspirin, and there's risk stratification for anticoagulation as well, which I won't get into. Uh, you can find that there are, are wonderful um, scoring models to figure out who needs anticoagulation, who can get by with just uh, low-dose aspirin. Uh, I did a, a Landmarks of Oncopharm episode years ago of capital L, capital D versus capital L, lowercase d. That's 
lenalidomide and dex, but a high-dose dex or a low-dose dex. Long story short, the high-dose dex group had better response rate, but poorer survival due to thrombotic events. And that study led to uh, the, the mainstay of therapy now, which is uh, some sort of anti-thrombotic uh, prophylaxis with at least aspirin in these low-dose aspirin, these patients taking lenalidomide with corticosteroids, which of course they all are when they have multiple myeloma. Uh, at least in the in the treatment setting, um, there are there is a, a, a warning for secondary malignancies. Uh, so patients can develop AML and MDS at a higher rate, um, and in the uh, in both you know especially in the maintenance setting, um, you know the rates of, of secondary AML or MDS is 7.5 percent versus 3.5 percent placebo. Maintenance, um, which is you know a significant. Uh, in, you know, uh, increase in secondary uh, hematologic malignancies. Now, those are just raw numbers. Ideally, they should be, you know, from a public health standpoint, put in per person years because maintenance lenalidomide has an overall survival benefit. So people are living longer, and and therefore they're able to. And the longer you live, the more likely you are to get to get any cancer. Uh, so there is that risk uh, that we do have to to consider in patients taking this uh, for a period of time. Now, there are a couple of warnings here I wasn't aware about. Increased mortality when used in CLL, there's a higher death rate in a lenalidomide arm compared to a chlorambucil arm. If you're not getting chlorambucil, you're not a good drug for CLL. Um, and that was that was halted, um, you know, the study that, that led to this warning was halted in July 2013. I was four years into my career, uh, you know, as a, as, a, as a big boy hematology oncology clinical pharmacist, and I did not hear of this or know of this. Um, so if you're a new clinician, you're like, gosh, I have, I'm having trouble keeping track. We all have couple, trouble keeping track. And uh, over the years, I've developed a, a decent system. It's not perfect for trying to stay current on new information as it comes out. But, you know, going back a decade, I wasn't where I am now and, and missed that. I also missed an increased mortality when uh, lenalidomide or pomalidomide was combined with, with pembrolizumab in, in certain malignancies. I missed that as well. That's a pretty recent one. So there's always new stuff coming out, um, and, and I missed that, but that is in the label. And we also have a warning for hepatotoxicity, increase in LFTs in about 15%. Um, scutaneous reactions are pretty common with, with lenalidomide. That can include Steven Johnson syndrome, uh, toxic epidermal, necrolysis, dress. You know, rash is pretty common. And you can hold the drug, let the rash resolve, and rechallenge. I mean, patients will do fine on that. Uh, there is a risk for tumor lysis syndrome or tumor flare with CLL and in lymphoma patients. Um, and then really importantly, we do see a decrease in the ability to mobilize patients for stem cell for autotransplant with more than four cycles of lenalidomide, which is why the, you know, the standard regimen for induction for myeloma. They call it VRD, V is Velcade, or Pertezomib, R, Revlimid, or this drug, lenalidomide, and dexamethasone. Those three drugs for four cycles. If you give more cycles of lenalidomide, more than four, you do decrease the ability to collect stem cells. So really important, that's why the four cycles of lenalidomide in induction for our multiple myeloma patients. Uh, you can see some thyroid disorders, both hypothyroidism, about 7%, and hyperthyroid, which is much uh, less. Um, Early mortality, seen in those with um, mantle cell lymphoma. Um, hypersensitivity can occur as well. And there's a, I noticed in, in, uh, in kind of prepping for this, there's an odd publication from a GI group about lenalidomide diarrhea that they limit to bile acid malabsorption, uh, which could be uh, 
mitigated with a bile acid sequestrant like cholesterol or something like that. Not something I've encountered, but something that, that may be, be, be beneficial to you. Now, if you are in uh, practice in the U.S., you probably have not seen a lot of thalidomide used. I, I used some thalidomide very early in my career. So to compare linalidomide to thalidomide, linalidomide has less fatigue and somnolence than thalidomide, which is very sedating. Um, it has um, you know, much less or even no neuropathy compared to thalidomide. Much more hematologic toxicity with linalidomide compared to thalidomide. And if you were to think about the thrombotic potential, I'd say lin is like a two plus sign. If you're looking at, you know, uh, like a table you would have in school, thalidomide is more like a three plus sign. They both are thrombogenic, thalidomide more thrombogenic than, than linalidomide. And as we wrap up here, you know, the, the absorption of linalidomide is actually decreased with a high fat meal by about 20%. However, it can be taken without regard for meals. With food, without food is okay. You do not see this often in the label for a drug but lilidomide does distribute into the semen. So even men taking this drug have to go through the embryo-fetal toxicity REMS program to ensure that they're using adequate contraception to prevent lilidomide, which gets in the semen, from, from, uh, from uh, impregnate a woman uh, because of the teratogenic potential of lilidomide. Uh, there's essentially no um, you know, liver-mediated metabolism of this drug. So there really are no drug-drug interactions um, unless you count uh, like a 14% increase in exposure of digoxin as a common concern you see in practice. Probably not. Um, the, uh, you know, the big thing here, the drug is cleared renally, like 90% limited renally. There are dose adjustments for a creatinine clearance less than 60 uh, with, with linalidomide. Um, some have argued um, even with... Uh, you know, even though you do require dose adjustment for real dysfunction, many of the myeloma patients, you know, they have what they call myeloma kidney, which maybe is reversible with aggressive treatment up front. I've seen that argued. Most people still follow the label of dose reducing for creatinine clearance uh, per the for the PI. Um, this is, you know, it's a drug that we see that is used a whole lot uh, in myeloma and, and and some MDS and then some other uh, some other. Uh, off-label uses kicking around out there that I won't go into for, for brevity. Uh, I mentioned next week we will have a, a, a kind of a, 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 a tandem um, episode talking about the REMS program specifically uh, and the, the uh, limited availability of generic linalidomide since this drug has been on the market since 2005. So look forward to that in your feeds for next week. Um, in the meantime, thank you for listening. You can follow me on the app formerly known as Twitter, at FarmDeetNib. And you can follow me on X, Instagram, and threads. Uh, follow the podcast at OncoFarmPod. And until I talk to you again, remember, doses matter.